Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Sarah Mercer, Professor of Foreign Language Teaching and the Head of ELT Methodology Department at the University of Graz. Dr. Mercer, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you, Jonathan, for the invite. It's lovely to be here. Today's article, which we will be discussing, was published in Theory and Practice of Second Language Acquisition in 2018, entitled Positive Language Education, Combining Positive Education and Language Education. And this was written uh, by yourself as the first author, Peter McIntyre, who has been on the podcast, uh, Citation 51, Tammy Gregerson, who will also be coming on the podcast at a later date, and Kyle Talbot. Is this uh, your PhD student? He was my PhD student. He's just graduated and did a great job. Uh, he did a thesis on teacher well-being. Um, but he was uh, he has a lovely history with the, the four of us together because he was um, Tammy's MA student. Oh. And then he came and did his PhD with me. Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> I think I read his bio that he had studied at the University of Iowa or something. He's an American? Yeah, he's an American. He did his MA uh, with Tammy in Iowa and then came to do his PhD. He worked on a project that we had here. We had a funded research project looking at the well-being of CLIL teachers. And he worked with us on that project. And at the same time, he did his PhD. Wow. I'm really jealous of him. <laughs> I really want to go to Austria. I've never been to Europe. I'm oh, sad really? to say. Oh, yeah. We have to work on that, Jonathan. We'll get you here. That's, once this COVID nonsense has, has calmed down, we'll get you here for sure. I think you have a picture on your Twitter or your LinkedIn or something of you on the top of a mountain hiking. And uh, just raw jealousy courses through my veins. <laughs> Well, I have to admit that I do love hiking. It's one of my uh, one of my leisure activities that I do to help me relax, and uh, and Austria is a beautiful place to do that. So uh, I'm very lucky to live here. And thank you for uh, fitting this interview in your very very busy schedule. I think you said in the pre-show meeting you're on your way to Africa. Yeah, but that's I, I'm going to Kenya on Saturday, um, and it's 99% holiday. Um, this is a trip that's been planned for a long time, and it's been postponed and cancelled four times. So I'm hoping that this time it will actually happen. It's hard to believe. Um, but I'm also, while I'm there, I've been doing, a, I, was, I took part in a wonderful mentorship project with Africa Elta. And uh, I have the joy of going to go and visit my mentee, who is a primary school teacher in um, Najoro province uh, and her school. So I'm going to go and take her some books for her library and go and hang out with her at her school for a day. So I'm looking forward to that. Wow. I'm going to Kenya on Saturday. I don't think a lot of people have used that vernacular during the course of their life. <laughs> well, I'm excited that I'm saying I can't quite believe I'm saying it because, like I say, this trip has been postponed many times. But um, I'm going to go and indulge one of my other hobbies, which is wildlife photography. That's something that I love. So that's uh, that's what I'm hoping to really indulge whilst I'm there. Well, I'm going to the grocery store on Saturday, so... <laughs> Hey, you never know. I, it, the, the way things have been with this trip, I might be joining you. <laughs> um, so all I'm right. not going to jinx it. Right. So, all right. So before we get into the paper, as I like to do and we like to do on the podcast, uh, a lot of people have mentioned to me that one of the favorite things they like about the podcast is, is learning people's story. So I like to sort of hand the floor over to you as far back as you'd like to go and, and take us through uh, the twists and turns and and uh, maybe take us up into around 2017, and we can start talking about today's paper. Okie dokie. Um, where do I start? So um, I suppose I'll start at school with um, a love of languages. Um, I studied French and German at school. Um, I enjoyed languages. Um, I was very lucky. I had a good school. And then I decided to go on to university to do what was a really funky set of studies at the time uh, and very new and contemporary was I did European studies, hmm. which allowed you to do two languages and another subject. So I did French, German and politics with the intention of going to become a lobbyist. Um, that was my, my intention at the time. Um, but then having spent some time in the political system and at the Houses of Parliament in the UK, I decided it wasn't for me. And uh, I, I swiftly abandoned that career plan. Um, but I, I, I had a lovely time. I enjoyed my languages. I spent my year abroad in Germany, had a fantastic time, met great people, did some lovely traveling. Um, as you mentioned before, I love to travel. I enjoy traveling. 
Um, and so languages seemed like a passport to me to allow me to go out and explore the world and learn about other people, other cultures, other countries. Um, and so that's how it kind of all started. And then when I finished my degree, I basically didn't know what to do. And so I did the usual um, certificate in TESOL and then decided to go teach. And then I came here. Originally, I came to Austria just for one year to just and I was teaching in a school as an assistant teacher. Um, really just to improve my German and give myself a bit of breathing time to see what career path I wanted. I'd also been teaching during my year abroad in Germany. Um, and I don't know why I had such a resistance to it, but, you know, everyone kept saying, oh, you'd make a great teacher. You should be a teacher. And the more people said it, the more I dug my heels in and said, I am not becoming a teacher. I don't want to be a teacher. Um, and then I sort of had that moment of realization that actually I was loving what I was doing. I was really enjoying it. And and it didn't even feel like work because I was having such a great time. Why did you dig your heels in? I don't know. I really don't know. I can't say. I just, I just, I, I think because everybody was so adamant that I should be a teacher and I was a perfect teacher. And I just thought it seemed like a lack of imagination at the time. <laughs> you know, I was just being sort of pushed in this direction and I hadn't I hadn't sort of chosen it it had chosen me mm. um and as it happens it was the best possible thing I could have done but I think that's also when we come to talk later I think it's quite important to remember that not everybody comes to teaching as a calling um and you can be utterly dedicated and love what you're doing and be utterly utterly delighted with your career choice but not have come to it through a calling I don't think I came to it with a I'm going to be a teacher I know I'm going to be a teacher I've always wanted to be a teacher it wasn't like that at all for me mm. so yeah so then I came to Austria I had and then I started teaching and then I did another year of teaching and then I sort of rather cheekily wrote to the university in Graz and said um, I'm here as a language assistant I'd really like a job do you have a job um, and miraculously, as fate will sometimes have it, somebody had just retired and a job had become available. And I didn't know that, but I just sort of cheekily on the off chance written to the head of department and said, I want to come and work there. And so I went down what I thought was for a cup of coffee. So the guy said, yeah, come down and we'll have a little chat and we'll see if there's anything for you. So I said, yeah, sure, fine. So I went down in my jeans and all very relaxed. And then I get there and there's a whole panel of people and it was a job interview and I had no idea. <laughs> um, I didn't even know I was going for a job interview. And, uh, and then anyway, through a, a series of also funny and strange events, I then got the job and, and that's how it started. And then once I started at the university... I really sort of got into my stride. I enjoyed I enjoyed the teaching, but I also enjoyed having some intellectual encounters and doing a little bit of reading and research. And then I decided that I, this was clearly going to be my career path. I was very much enjoying teaching. I didn't have any desire to leave Austria in a hurry. I was feeling very settled here. Um, and so then I decided to do my MA mm. in TESOL. So I did that in the, but I did it all in the UK. Um, I did that at Reading. And then it just went on from there, really. I didn't, I, I, I just kept thinking, I, I suppose it's like a lot of people, I just kept thinking I need to be better at what I'm doing. I love my teaching. I love teaching, but I think I need to know more. I want to be better at it. I want to do a better job. Um, and I think that's what keeps you going now is that when you're, and maybe that's part of the reason that I've made some of the shifts I've made is that now I'm involved in teacher education very strongly. I want to know how to help teachers. I want to know how to help future teachers and current teachers. So the drive to do research and the drive to, to do these degrees is, is often because you want to do something better. You want to be better at what you're doing. It's a, a chance to learn and grow. So, yeah, so then I did the PhD, which I did in Lancaster, which was an utter, utter joy. I, I It was torturous to do it alongside a full-time job. I had a, I was doing the PhD, had a full-time job. It was extremely busy time. Um, but I had the most wonderful supervisor, um, Alan Waters, who, God rest his soul, has passed now. But he was a, he was a wonderful support and um, an extremely humble and kind person that uh, I learned a lot from. And then in Austria, if you want to become a professor, you have to do something called a habilitation, which is like a second PhD, if you like. <coughs> and I, I don't, again, I, I, I sort of seem to fall into these things. I don't seem to have a clear career path. I don't seem to have made sort of very, but um, a colleague in the department said, well, why don't you do it? And I, I couldn't think of a good reason why not to do it. So I did. 
and then yeah eventually it led me to to have the position of, of professor which is lovely and um, the whole course of that process of doing the habilitation moved me from language teaching alone um, very clearly into teacher education and so now I have made pretty much an exclusive shift now that I'm not I'm in fact, well, at the moment I'm on sabbatical, but I don't have any language teaching classes at all now. They're all teacher education classes now. Now, I looked on your CV that you sent me. Um, I hope I never have to compete for a job against you. Jeez. Um, <laughs> it looks like you just... It, 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 it looked like you just finished a degree in psychology, which is close to my heart because I just finished a degree in psychology. Oh, you I, did? I'm, um, I'm a bit behind you. Um, so I did a, a master. I just finished a master's in psychology, and now I'm starting a PhD in education. Um, so what what brought you to go back and do another uh, degree in in psychology? Yeah, you'd think I'd had enough, right? So. Um... That's that's very, very interesting, and it's related to some of the stuff we spoke a little bit about earlier. So what happened is, of course, everything that I've done – right, let's go back. When I started to do my PhD, I came to my supervisor, Alan, um, and said to him, I want to research self-concept. I've been reading. I'd done a, I taught a course at the university, and I'd, taught, I'd done an experiential approach to strategy training. And then I just did some interviews afterwards and was doing a little bit of research, not for publication, just for my own interest. And I could see that the, the benefits of the course were not really in any linguistic gains, but was really in gains in psychological terms, that the, the students felt empowered, they had more agency, they felt more confident. And so that feeling of confidence and that feeling of, of um, being able to take control of your learning, that was then what was it driving me and what became of interest. And so my supervisor, I went to my supervisor and said, okay, I'm going to have a change of plan. I've decided what I want to do. I want to to look at at, at language learner self-concept. And um, he basically said, look, Sarah, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, I can't help you. I know nothing about psychology. This is a degree in applied linguistics. I think you're going, you know, very far out of field. I can't support you if you choose to do that. But this digging in the heels thing with me was that I dug my heels in and said, no, no, I really want to do this. And then he said, well, OK, then then do it and we'll, we'll see how you go. And in retrospect, I probably overcompensated for feeling that I had a strong background in applied linguistics, but knew nothing about psychology by reading everything on psychology I could lay my hands on. Mm. And so I read why I read a lot anyway. I love reading and read a lot, but I read avidly but widely into psychology and um and in some respects i probably went so far into psychology that i neglected a little bit the applied linguistics certainly in the context of my phd and i had to go back and revisit some things Hmm. um and so that's how it started with my interest in all areas psychology and it just grew from there and i became um i when I started to look at the field, our field in applied linguistics, I had the sense that there was a lot being done, but nobody wanted to say out loud that they were doing psychology. So there'd only been a couple of publications. So there had been Steve uh, McDonoghue, who did something in the 80s that used the word psychology. Mm-hmm. And then there was, of course, the key book was Williams and Burden, who did psychology for teachers. And he was a psychologist and Marion was a language teacher. Mm. And that was the key and one and only book that um, was bold enough to use psychology in its title or to say that this is about psychology. And our field was so dominated by motivation work that that was the only sort of construct that was really being given any serious attention. And I was just very lucky that my PhD was on self-concept and it coincided and I didn't know this at the time, but it coincided with Zoltan Dernier developing his L2 motivational self-system, which is all based on self-concept. And that was just a lucky coincidence. I had no idea. I didn't know Zoltan personally at the time. I didn't know he was working on this. And um, both came out essentially at the same time. So I finished my PhD and uh, he was publishing and writing about the L2 motivational self-system. So it was a kind of lucky coincidence for me that the construct I'd chosen was the basis of the what, I, what is now probably the predominant model in motivation still. 
but I had this sense that we weren't, nobody wanted to say they were doing psychology. So when Marion and Stephen and I decided to do the first edited collection, I was, we had some discussions with the publishers and they said, well, you know, do you really want to say psychology? And I said, yes, I really do. And I was quite adamant that that's what we want to call it. Why should we shy away from it? Um, and it's related to a whole host perhaps of other issues, but I, I, we wanted to, I deliberately wanted us to start broadening our field and talking about constructs that are looked at in educational research and psychology research. Um, but that maybe, you know, we haven't explored as much, probably because we haven't had, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't the community. And that, you know, that leads to also the discussions that we had then about setting up things like iApple um, and the conference that all came from trying to thinking about my own development and the experiences I had that I felt that if we wanted young academics to have the confidence to research in areas of psychology within language learning and teaching, there needed to be a community that they could identify with. Now, iApple so, is the International uh, Association of the Psychology of Language Learning, uh, iApple.com, if people want to check it out. And the, the PLL conference that is the psychology of language learning conference which that's is right and that's, which has been that's going on for about how long it started in 2014 in graz that was your chance jonathan so well you'll have to wait till it comes back to graz but that was your chance <laughs> yeah i really <laughs> want to come <laughs> so it started in 2014 and it was also it was part of my wish to to try to create a sense of um community and confidence so that people would be willing to say that's a field it can be identified it's got a conference it's got a journal it's got a book series this has been one of my key ambitions was to try to get this established so that we can talk about it confidently and say you know let's do our own work let's do our own identity development let's give um young academics who are maybe working in settings where there's a very narrow view of what applied linguistics is or a very narrow view of what language learning and teaching and they want to research these things let's give them that space and that support and that confidence to do that otherwise the field will never grow well let me um, just um jump in real quick just to give those um links again so there's uh, the International Association for the Psychology of Language Learning. That's iApple.com. Within iApple, you can look for the PLL conference. Fingers crossed it's going to be at um, Peter McIntyre's hometown in Nova Scotia yeah. this year. Um, I bought a plane ticket. Fingers, oh, cr fingers crossed. Uh, I actually, Graz would be much better because it's much closer to Japan. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's not easy to get to Cape Breton. I've, I've also bought my plane ticket, and it's not a it's not an easy place to reach, but it'll be worth it when we get there. And the psychology of language learning and teaching, um, Dr. Mercer and Stephen Ryan, who is on the podcast Citation eighty one, you are the series editors of quite an ambitious series of books. Um, two books that some listeners might be familiar with in the series. East Asian Perspectives on Silence in English Language Education. We've had a lot of uh, guests um, from public that we, who published in that book: Jim King, Seiko Harumi, uh, Dat Bao. Um, also, the emotional roller coaster of language teaching with uh, Christina Gonneau, Jean-Marc Devade. Uh, they've been on the show. Uh, Contemporary language motivation theory with Ali Al Hori and Peter. Ma it seems like a lot of the guests I've chosen are from this uh, directed motivational currents in language education. Christine Muir, she was on the podcast. So uh, maybe this is my bias, but I love this series and I'm so glad it exists. So thank you. Thank you yeah. so much for the hard work that you've done. No, and also thank you to Multilingual Matters for having had the courage to to go with us on this, um, because, you know, the, the, when we set up the series um it was in the context of one of the PLLs, the one in Finland, um, that we decided that there was enough work being done and enough diverse work being done to merit a series of its own. And, you know, for publishers, they've got to be clear that it, it's a strong enough field and that there's enough diversity and quality work being done to merit a series of its own. And so, um, you know, fair game and great credit to Multilingual Matters for sitting down with us and saying, you know, okay, you know, make your pitch why you think we should do this. 
and then for for having the courage to support us and it's it's been fantastic and and the series is a joy to work on and it just is such a lovely confirmation to see how much is being done all over the world um, different constructs different ways of looking at things different methodological approaches and also something that was important to Stephen and I I think at the beginning was um, also different understandings of psychology that we didn't want to get one of the problems for psychology in the field is that because it's been associated so strongly with individual differences there's been a very strong emphasis on cognitive approaches to psychology mm. and one of the things that we wanted to stress is that psychology is a field of inquiry it doesn't tell you how you have to approach that so you can have a social constructivist approach to psychology there are lots of different ways of approaching it and our field has had you know, and I'm talking about the field very broadly here, particularly strongly in SLA terms, has had a very, very strong cognitive view of psychology. So if you said you're working in psychology, they say, yeah, well, you know, we're not, you know, we're interested in the social. And, and that's just nonsense. Why could you not be interested in social and psychology? Why can you not look at both? So I think that um, that's also been lovely to see in the series that there's a diversity of perspectives on psychology in the field. And that's just lovely that the, the more plurality of perspectives and topics and context we have the richer it is and the more we all have to learn so it's just a win-win on the on today's podcast's show notes i will put the links to iapple um, also the psychology of language learning and teaching series which we mentioned i'll also put links to a great um youtube video which was a webinar which i was lucky enough to watch live ask the authors uh, ask the authors live putting a book together um, where it's yourself and Stephen Ryan and Ali Al-Hori and Peter McIntyre and Christine Moore. And I think you were, you were kind of going through the nuts and bolts. So if people are interested in this kind of conversation about how to put a book series together, how to put a book together, that's a great um, YouTube video to watch. I'll also put the link of um, the webinar that you did with uh, Herbert Pukta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Marion Williams, uh, The Psychology in Practice, which is another awesome. I, I feel like I'm not really a stalker. I'm just a fan. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You can you can stalk me long distance. That doesn't that doesn't feel quite so bad. <laughs> yeah, is there like a I can write a paper academic stalking in real time? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's fine. That's all good. <laughs> but I I I just going back to um again, what was so you did you start the the masters in psychology in 2017? Sorry, yeah, I got I got wandered off track there. I don't remember when I started it, if the honest. I think it must be on my CV. I don't really remember, but it's not that long ago. And what yeah, so right, coming back, sorry, that I do that a lot. I wander off and then get lost in my thinking. So I I felt that I wanted to make sure Everything was so strongly psychology defined what we were doing, um, but obviously within the context of language learning and teaching. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't oversimplifying the field of psychology, that I wasn't overlooking um, perspectives, constructs, ways of approaching things. And I think I just wanted the sort of confidence and reassurance that what we were doing was legitimate and we were not missing a trick, basically. And so I did the degree, a BPS accredited degree um, uh, in psychology. I'm very, very glad that I did it. Um, but as much as anything, it's reassured me that for the most part, the field is, is mature and is drawing sensibly on the literature from both, from, you know, from both uh, disciplines. Um, because I think that's one of the problems with interdisciplinary work, um, which clearly all the PLL stuff is interdisciplinary. I think one of the problems can be is if one of the disciplines is neglected. And that was what I was wanting to make sure that we were not, you know, um, if you if you're writing on. I don't know, if you're writing on emotions in language learning and teaching, you have to know the literature of emotions in language learning and teaching, but you've got to know the literature about emotions in education and the functioning and the understanding of emotions in psychology. And that's a lot to know and bring together. And so I think that's, if I see literature that has not been done well, it's when it only draws on what has been done in our field and doesn't uh, go to the to the other discipline of psychology and look at what's going on there as well. Now, before we get into the paper, I did want to bring this up because I'm actually um, writing a paper which is commenting on some of the narratives that have emerged throughout the podcast. And I, I'm, I'm to blame 
in some ways as well, because tongue in cheek, when I had Peter McIntyre on and uh, Kim Knowles on, I said, oh, it's nice to talk to a real psychologist. Um, oh, sort shame of, on you. So I think if you go back and listen to those, yeah, I think I think you'll be angry. Um, but it was, it was a bit tongue in cheek, but it, it kind of brought up this conversation. And in uh, Citation 55 with with Ali, he was sort of saying, you know, do we have an I do we have an identity problem or or do we have a label problem? And should applied linguists be doing psychology or should we be called applied psychologists? And I thought that was kind of an interesting topic. So I, I you know, I've been kind of looking at the interview with Peter McIntyre, what, what he thinks about it, because, you know, he was a trained psychologist. Um, I think in the foreword to the book, um, 60 Years Since Gardner and Lambert, um, in your series, Zoltan Dornier uh, wrote the preface. And even in that preface, he was saying, you know, the previous generation were psychologists and I'm more of an applied linguist. And then Ali was saying, you know, do we have this identity crisis? And he wrote a paper with Peter DaCosta, The Identity Crisis in Language Motivation Research. And uh, Dr. Kim Knowles, she, she didn't think we... She didn't think it was an identity crisis. Of course, she came from the psychology side. Um, so I kind of wanted, I was wondering your take about that, about, you know, if, if someone's not a trained psychologist, should they really be doing psychology research? Or I, I don't know if that's the right question. It's just, that's kind of setting it up. To, yeah, okay. I know what you mean. Um, I, 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 I don't think there's an identity crisis either. Um, I, you know, <laughs> interestingly enough, so my first my first love was was self concept, and that obviously touches on the field of identity. Looks at identity. I don't know. I I'm not sure I know anybody who thinks that identity is um, not multidimensional, fluid, with blurry boundaries, dynamic, um, draws on different fields. So why would your identity as a researcher be singularly defined? It makes no sense. Um, I actually think if you look at language learning and teaching, it is such a complex undertaking. Of course, you're going to draw on different disciplines. And I think that's actually very healthy. Um, Stephen and I wrote a paper about the, the, the joys and benefits, but also the perils of doing interdisciplinary research. Um, and I, I think... I, I don't. I, I just don't see the problem with drawing on different disciplines as long as you do it with care and and you know. And do we have some kind of inferiority complex? Why can we not say that we're applied linguists working in the interdisciplinary area of psychology of language learning and teaching? Why do we have to label ourselves as one thing or the other? I, I don't see the problem. It, we are what we are. We do what we do. We should be proud of that and have the confidence to be that. We're not some deficient version of something else. We are what we are, and we're good at what we do. I don't think we need to um, have some kind of inferiority complex. You know, I don't want to say that we, you know, it's not. We, why do you not say when somebody comes on, oh, it's nice to talk to a real applied linguist? Why do we have this sense that we are deficient in some way to psychology? Um, that's just not true. I, if I look at my own experiences and the work that's being done in our field, I think that the, if, if some of the psychologists were to look at our field, there's really interesting things they could learn from us. And there are things that they could take from what we're doing in this in this, in this this very fertile interdisciplinary zone. So I think there are caveats that we must maintain quality, and that means a commitment from someone working in this field to engage with two big bodies of literature, research, and work and scholarship. And I think that will um, possibly deter some people, and it will lead some people to do work that's not of sufficient quality if they haven't engaged fully with what that means. Um, but I, I, I have no problem with us having this um, rich, diverse, dynamic, multi-interdisciplinary area of scholarship. I think it's a wonderful space to work. It's exciting, it's original, um, and I think it's very, very real. Um, so I, I don't see any identity problem. I think that, that for me, that somehow that statement reflects a lack of confidence to be who we are and to say who we are clearly and confidently. Now, in in the comments with Ali, and I think Kim Knowles echoed the same thing about this interdisciplinary, I can't even say the word. How can I do the research <laughs> if I can't say the word? Interdisciplinary <laughs> research. Um, they both thought that that was the solution. Um, but I think what Ali was sort of implying, and, and Kim didn't mention this because she's, you know, she's a psychologist, was that if you reach out and do interdisciplinary research, for example, if you're an applied linguist and you dive into the, you know, the, a deep dive into psychology, 
um, maybe you should have someone on your team who's a psychologist. Um, doing if if you don't have the confidence yourself, then that's a very smart thing to do. And having having a team to work with, whether it's a team of applied linguists, whether it's a team of people from different disciplines, is always enriching. I have never done any work with other people where you don't learn a massive amount from who they are. And it's always good to work with other people who bring different perspectives, who challenge you, who make you think about things differently, who show up your blind spots. That's good for anybody. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't think it's a must, but I think it is one possible solution in certain circumstances. Again, I think it depends on what aspect is being researched, what approach is being taken. Um, I think there's a lot tied up here with also methodological discussions. Mm. So I think, you know, I think sometimes we're blurring the discussion when we're talking about psychology, but what we're really talking about is um, a certain type of quantitative research. So I think that's maybe a blurring of the boundaries there as well in whether we're actually talking about psychology as a domain of scholarship or we're actually talking about a methodological issue. Mm. Well, that's fantastic. I, I appreciate your candor on that um, because I, <laughs> I, I think about it as well. I mean, but listening to what you said, it sounds like you were a voracious reader and against your PhD um, advisor's advice, you know, you, you did that deep dive in psychology. Um, I think a lot of people don't have the time or don't have the motivation to to do the research as far as they need to go in the, into psychology, maybe to get the confidence which you spoke of. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I mean, um, I, I, you know, you've got to ask why I did an MA and my well, MSc. You have to ask why I did an MSc. I did an MSc because I still didn't have the confidence to be sure that what I was doing was okay. Because we spend so much time saying, yeah, well, you know, you're not a psychologist. Ah, oh, yeah, well, you know, you're not a that I was starting to think, holy moly, I'd better, you know, I'd better just make sure I know what I'm talking about here. And I did the degree. I learned a lot. It was super interesting, but I came out of it feeling confident that actually what we were doing before was just fine. But mm. I think what I did take from the degree is that psychology is very, very strongly determined still um, by a certain understanding of what research is. And as you know, I'm, I'm a, a very passionate and engaged qualitative researcher. Um, I've been involved in mixed method studies. I'm not, I just don't get so excited about a pure quantitative study. It's just a personal thing. It's nothing to do with, it's just, I don't enjoy that as much. And I am one of the things that I think we benefit from in PLL is that we have that diversity of methodological approaches and that leads to richer, more varied, more diverse insights and allows us to have a more nuanced understanding and we don't get into this treadmill of replication and we, we allow ourselves a little bit more creativity and innovation. So, you know, I'm, I realize I'm probably upsetting some people along the way here, but I, I think that that's a positive thing to have that diversity. And my experience of doing the degree in psychology was I felt that they were still so constrained by this need to prove themselves as a certain type of researcher, hard science taken seriously, certain type of methodological approaches and so on. Uh, and I felt that was, I felt that in some ways, in some places, um, restricted creativity and an ability to think and challenge the norms. The difficult thing I had doing my psychology degree was that my advisors had really no background in language learning. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I almost had to defend the field where I felt as far as language learning, mm -hmm. I had to meet them sort of, they just, they just didn't, I don't know. It was, it was a really difficult, I'm glad I went through that process. Mm -hmm. But it was almost mm -hmm. like everything I did, I had to argue for the field. I, I almost was like a representative of the field, which I felt like I wasn't in a good position to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe I, I didn't do a good enough job, but it was it was an argument that I couldn't win. Um, and then I, I sort of got some advice where, oh, well, you can ask for an external supervisor who has more um, has more experience in, in language learning. And that was sort of like the advice, you know, put together a team of. So I, I had sort of the opposite problem. Um, where I needed I someone. It's the same. Yeah. I think it's this insularity of of of, of disciplinary thinking, um, and that I think is actually something that PLL does well is to challenge that. Like you said, you've just talked about we have in PLL 
in the board of PLL, we have communication scientists, we have psychologists, and we have applied linguists, and we have language teachers. Now, you can't get a better, more rewarding, rich combination of people than that for our field. So, you know, what you're talking about, your experiences in psychology, some of the experiences we've had, I've had in applied linguistics. How many times have I tried to do research where people have said, yeah, but that's not really that's not really applied linguistics, is it? Mm. Well, it is in my view. And so I think um, I think that's part of what our profile is in, in IAPL and the PLL various endeavours is to challenge that and to give that space and confidence to people to, to look um, either together or in, in other, there are other ways of doing interdisciplinary work and look at, the, look at the field through different lenses, multiple lenses. And I think that, like I said, I think that's a good thing. I do think we need to... Um, be conscious of quality, I think, but I, I, I don't think that's exclusive to us. I think it's perhaps a particular danger for interdisciplinary work, but I don't think it's exclusive to interdisciplinary work that you have to monitor quality. Well, it's interesting what you said about, you know, you know, people sort of being in their own camp. That, well, that, is that really applied linguist? So when I when I was started writing this paper, I was doing some research. When did this term applied linguist come about? And, you know, mm-hmm. what, what were some of the writings back? And, you know, some of the papers that were written in the eighties were, you know, applied linguists and educators don't talk to each other. <laughs> that was yeah, like so <laughs> so it's kind of the same thing, but it was just, you know, instead of a psychologist or a, so it's, it's again, I think what you're doing is great. Um, when I found out about iApple, I thought, cause I was kind of in, in the middle of doing this degree, degree in psychology and, and lost at times and feeling, you know, unconfident mm. and and then i i found this or i said oh my gosh i can't believe this exists this this is perfect <laughs> oh so, that's lovely i'm so glad you said that <laughs> so it's it's really it's really an amazing thing and um uh there's there's a few researchers i know in japan who have started to read some of the journal articles they're, they're not really interested in psychology but they said hey there's this new journal uh, that you might be interested in is oh i know about it i know about this journal <laughs> so i guess it's starting to spread um, around the world a bit, which it was just kind of, it's kind of a new journal, right? The journal's very new. So we went through the process. So we started, um, we started with the conferences and then we decided that it was, um, ripe to try to make an association. So we made the association and about the same time we made the book series. And then once we've got both, all of those things established, then we said, you know what, now it's time for the journal. And um, I worked with Imelda and Joe in setting up the journal. And then now at the moment, the editors are, I think, I think at the moment it's Phil and Ali and I've forgotten who, I've forgotten the other ones. Um, and they now have taken over and, it, and they're doing a fantastic job. We just had a, we just had a special issue come out on grit in language teaching, which also included papers by psychologists and applied linguists and people in between. And uh, that's been hugely successful. It's been downloaded however many zillions of times. So, yeah, it's doing well. And we're, we're, we're at the beginning. You know, we only started the, the, the conference series in 2014, so 2014. So that's not long. So if you think of what we've achieved in that short space of time, I think it's fantastic. And and it will continue to grow. And, and it's the more people who get actively involved and build up the confidence and these kinds of conversations are great for getting people talking about it, thinking about it, exploring the area, looking at some of the literature, um, and just having dialogue. I think that's that's a, a, an exciting. It just gives us such an exciting field to work in. Absolutely. All right. So let's uh, let's jump into the paper again. The paper that we're discussing today is positive language education combining positive education and language education. So when did you start thinking about writing this paper and can you talk about, you know, putting it together, uh, you know, because you have three other co-authors and the structure of it and just sort of the background of the paper? Right. So, um, so obviously sort of heart and soul, I'm a teacher. And even though I'm, I'm teaching teachers now, I, I still... I haven't shaken, maybe this is also part of these multiple identities, I haven't shaken my teacher identity, it's still very strong in me, I still identify very strongly with teachers and as a teacher, even if I'm not a teacher of language in classrooms in that same way as before. Um, and so I've, I've maintained a very strong interest in what actually happens in the classroom, what the implications are for teaching. Um, and obviously we've been doing a lot of work in positive psychology. 
And again, Jonathan, just for your interest, that's also a term that people were reluctant for us to use at the beginning. Mm. And I was adamant that we stick to what it is. We shouldn't try and hide it or be embarrassed about it if we can't stand up and be confident and defend it. But, you know, there are so many stereotypes and myths about what positive psychology is that there was a little bit of a battle also at the beginning of working on this to say it is positive psychology, that's what it is, that's what we're going to call it, and that's that, and we're going to use the term that it is. Why should we, you know, because there was some sniffiness um, among certain quarters, that, you know, and positive psychology, it's all a bit, you know, pop psychology and happyology and fluff. And we had to work against those those prejudices. Um, I've lost my thread again. So, yeah, positive learning and education. So, what was, it, what was interesting is, you know, the reason why I chose this paper is because I think it, it it's a good time it's a good place in the timeline where positive psychology has really blossomed yeah. since this paper was published. In from my view, as far as if you're just looking at the literature and, and number of citations, the the title of this paper, Positive Language Education, Combining Positive Education and Language Education, doesn't have the term positive psychology in the title, although you do bring it up in the abstract. Yeah, so, no, positive psychology is the whole underlying frame, basically. So positive education comes from positive psychology. So positive education is a movement um, to bring in elements of positive psychology, understanding from positive psychology into education. So ways of um, working towards boosting well-being for the stakeholders, um, but also giving them the skills moving forward to keep working on their well-being moving ahead. So it's about creating positive institutions, about creating a positive um, set of emotions and positive well-being climate within the school or within the class, because those positive, as we know, those positive emotions foster learning. Well, from so your, your perspective, when did positive psychology really sort of make its – From when did it really start popping up in the literature? Like I said, from my perspective, and I could be wrong, after 2018 to the present is sort of really increased a lot. Was this something that was around, you know, before this paper that sort of was well understood in circles? Yeah. No. Um, when did we when did we do the I don't know, you probably know better than I do, when we did the positive uh, psychology and SLA edited collection with Peter and Tammy. I feel I like it was, was around, around the same 15. time, wasn't it? I think it was about 15 or 16. So we, and, and obviously we'd, you know, from our point of view, we'd start, it's published in 15 or 16, but we'd started working on that a year or two earlier. So we'd had a couple of years working on that, looking at the constructs, looking at how they affect learning, looking at uh, interventions and so on. But we hadn't, this paper was a kind of um, marker in the sand to say, and, and it, it tackles some big issues really. Um, it's to say that, shouldn't we be isn't it possible for us to be teaching language and at the same time be attending to well-being that they shouldn't be mutually exclusive mm. that we can be I don't know any teacher who doesn't try to engender a positive classroom dynamic and boost the confidence of their learners and help them to lower their anxiety and so on I think teachers do a lot to attend to well-being intuitively because they understand that that is what that kind of positive climate and well-being that you can create that psychological safety that you create in a classroom will lead to better learning so i don't I, there are very few teachers who wouldn't be doing that and i think what this is saying is let's make that very explicit let's look very consciously at what we can do to address two things one the climate and the well-being in the present in the classroom to foster learning and also creating those competences and transferable skills that learners can develop um, to take with them beyond the classroom in their future lives, in their current lives, um, as competences for well-being in the future. And it's important, in my view, it's important that for language teaching that we don't, that we understand that all educators have a responsibility and teach beyond the language. Um, well, I think you, you did a good job in the paper of setting it up where, you know, you're talking about, you know, just because you have the highest GDP doesn't, doesn't correlate to happiness. No, and, no. you know, and, and you, you talked about that survey uh, of parents, you know, what, what, what do you want your child to be? And a lot of them talked about well-being as, as, as opposed to accomplishments. And, and you, I thought, I thought you made it very, a very tangible argument. Um, you know, we need to teach, and again, you brought one of the, one of the, uh, 
uh, categories of the paper was, you know, 21st century skills. So it, it made me think about it a lot, right? We, there's no use being a successful, you know, quote unquote, member of society if you're depressed all the time. No. And that can and affect was, an, an entire economy if you, if you add the numbers up, like you sort of alluded to in the paper. Well, I think even since that paper, a lot has changed. And um, we'll come back in a minute to talk about how the pandemic has really sort of shone a spotlight on well-being. But, mm. um, it, for example, the PISA studies, that's been a dramatic shift for me. So we can talk all we like about well-being being important for education. But, you know, there's also a lot of prejudices you have to battle against even using the term well-being. But um, when an institution like the OECD and PISA says we're not just going to measure literacy and mathematics scores, but we're going to measure learner well-being because it's no use having students scoring the highest literacy in mathematics and science scores, but they're all utterly miserable and depressed and suffering from anxiety. Mm. So the OECD a few years ago now introduced learner well-being as a measure alongside the other measurements in the PISA studies. And what they've introduced this year and going forward from 2023 is going to be part of it is they're also measuring teacher well-being. Now, in my view, not that I'm saying we need validation through this kind of um, systematic testing of these things, but it's a huge statement for an organization like the OECD to say the quality of an education system also rests on the levels of well-being of its learners and its teachers. And that is a massive statement. And we have been a little slow and reluctant to engage with the seriousness of what that actually means. And that's something that I think we're starting to engage with more. And I think the experiences during the pandemic have really shone a spotlight on the need to attend to well-being of staff and students. And my hope is that we don't lose sight of that moving forward and that we do take the seriousness of, of, of that to heart and say it's no use having learners with fantastic language proficiency if their well-being is suffering and if the staff well-being is suffering in the process. That's not the sign of a quality, healthy education system. Can and I, so, can I yeah, ask sorry. about you personally? Because um, as far as someone who's going to write about positive psychology, I – if anyone is, I'm, you're you're you know you're widely known, and I'm sure a lot of people have, have visited your webinars or um, seen you speak. I would say you know, I, it's like if you were like a depressive personality, it'd be harder to get involved in this sort of movement. But I think anyone who's sort of like seen you, you do you do seem like a very very positive, energetic. Um, like a genuinely positive person so much. So when even just watching one of your webinars afterwards, I, I feel a little bit more motivated. I am not naturally that type of person. I lean more to the depressive side. Um, so I'm just wondering, how do you, do you battle with this yourself? Because on the outside looking in, it seems every time I've seen you speak, you always have a big smile on your face. You're super positive, energetic. Um, yeah, if I see some posts online, they're always, you know, very positive, energetic, is this something where, you know, you're, I think I asked Ali, like your motivate, your, your research into motivation, did that help you with motivation? And he said, oh, of course. So does it, did your research into positive psychology, was there a shift or have you, have you always been this way? Um, I, I think I'm very fortunate that I've always been this way. I've been very high energy, which is not always a good thing for people around me, as they will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> So my high energy is is permanent. That's been like that since a small child, and my family has strong opinions on my high energy levels. So I, I think I'm very fortunate. That has certainly already been the case, and um, I am generally very cheerful and very positive. But that's not to say I'm always cheerful and positive. You know, I am human. I, I have days when I'm miserable or I'm bad-tempered. I, I battle with my own frustrations. Uh, I battle with being cantankerous sometimes. Um, I don't always live the best version of myself because that's part of being human. So positive psychology doesn't mean that everyone's happy all the time. It's about having the ratio so that you're aiming for generally more positive up moments than the down moments. And I think that's what well-being is, is, is defined of, is, is that kind of balance between the two. And I'm fortunate that it has been... Uh, that it's it's been easier for me from my whole life experience to be like that. But 
um, there are moments when you you work at it and the work that you've done on psychology. So, you know, I, who are we kidding? During the pandemic, it was it was effortful to be cheerful. Um, it was a difficult time. We had nearly eight months on and off of lockdown here. So, it, it, you know, over the winter, which is a depressing enough time as it is. So that was a very difficult period. And knowing about positive psychology was hugely helpful because I could say to myself, OK, there are things I can do here that's within my control. There are, there are, I know that there are strategies I can do to help myself to to find the positives in this, to make the most of this. Um, I know there are things I can't change, so I'm not going to get upset about the things I can't change. They're out of my control, but there are things that are within my control, and there are things that I can do. So I can truly say that, particularly during the pandemic, it was effortful. Um, and I, I worked at it. Um, and, you know, who are we kidding? I mean, I'm extremely fortunate. You know, I have my own home. I had a secure job. Um, there was a lot of positives about my life that, that I, you know, I wasn't um, facing the challenges that many people did. But, yeah, I think working on a topic, you... I do wonder if we're drawn to topics for a reason. You know, we tend to be drawn to certain topics out of interest for a reason. And we do benefit um, from our research, not just for what we're able to contribute to others, but for ourselves. And, yeah, I have absolutely, definitely benefited from my work on, on positive psychology and well-being. No well, question. One, one tip that you gave in one of the webinars, I think it was your webinar on the psycholo um, Psychology and Practice book, uh, maybe you can tell again to the listeners. I think you said you you keep, I don't know, you keep a box of, of I don't I don't remember what you called it. Um, where, yeah. Where someone if someone sends like says something to you that's nice, you write it down and you put it in the box so it's like you keep track of positive things. I, yeah, no, so that's something that you can do. I can't say I'm extremely disciplined at doing that, but what I do do is I keep like thank you notes or if a student sends a very nice email um, and they say something nice, I might print it out and save it. And it's just nice to remind yourself because sometimes you get caught in the swamp of, of you know, negativity and and there is also, you know, in, in the workplace sometimes there are sometimes toxic environments and climates and, um, it's nice to remind yourself it's not all like that. There's some lovely experiences and lovely people and and remind yourselves of the positives. Um, so it's called a positive portfolio and it's a, just a way that people can just keep a stack, a little box or a, a folder. Um, mine's actually just a heap behind me <laughs> of, um, of stuff that, that, that brings you nice memories and has positive thoughts attached to it that you can revisit. But this comes from um, gratitude practices, which is one of the things that I have personally found very useful that at the end of every day, I do take stock to say, you know, what am I grateful for today? What went well? What did I enjoy? Um, what am I thankful for? You know, and it can be things that you're thankful that it didn't happen. You know, I didn't glad I didn't bump into that car at the traffic lights or whatever it is. So I have made that um, um, a, a practice and it's not, um, it's just a way of training your brain to also see positives. And I think that's one of the misunderstandings of positive psychology. It's not stamping on or ignoring the negatives. It's just allowing you to also see and very much consciously focus on some of the positives as well. And this gratitude practice every day is just a way of training your brain during the day and at the end of the day to just scan and see some of the positive things and, and be able to focus on that and say, oh, yeah, you know, that was nice and that happened, that was good. And so you don't go to bed at night thinking, well, that was rubbish and that annoyed me and that was, but that you actually try and redress that and think of the good things instead yeah in a previous episode um with um kate mayer citation 95 if people want to listen she was talking about cognitive behavioral uh therapy yeah. and we kind of did like um uh uh role play of it because i, I i've been trying to cut back on my drinking so mm -hmm. we were kind of going through this steps of you know why do you drink and, and it was just it was this thing of it's similar to what you're saying. It's more of more of an objective output instead of looking at something negatively or looking at something, you know, if you're always looking at something in the frame of negativity, maybe look at it more objectively, right? It's like there, there's other ways to look at the same thing. 
this is like cognitive disputing. So, you know, holding up something or writing down something that you think and challenging that and questioning it and seeing if if there is, in fact, other ways of looking at it and other perspectives. So I think also one of the things that um, there's a need to be careful of in this area when we start talking about well-being is that well-being is not the same as mental health issues. Mm. So there will you know, when we're talking about well-being, we're talking about coping with the daily up and down and relative positivity and life satisfaction. Now, that can contribute to mental health issues and mental health issues can contribute to that as well. But it's a different thing. Mental health issues are, you know, clinically diagnosable and they need different kinds of treatment. And a positive thinking intervention is not going to be able to deal with that. Right. So I think that we need to make a distinction and be careful that we don't, that, you know, don't overstretch our capacities here. Well-being is talking about your daily functioning and coping strategies. And like I say, your well-being levels will contribute to mental health issues, just as mental health issues contribute to well-being. But they're not the same thing. They're different issues and they need a different, uh, they need different approaches. And that's why it's a difficult thing to write about. Um, sure. So again, um, the paper that we discussed today. Uh, we didn't discuss it too much, but I'd encourage everyone to read it. <laughs> positive language education, combining positive education and language education. I like to keep these under an hour. So maybe um, just to, to finish off the interview, can you talk a little bit about the psychology and practice book that was uh, recently published with your co-authors, Marion Williams and Herbert uh, Pukta? Um, I, I think it's an awesome, awesome, awesome book. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. Um, yeah, this was um, this was actually very much related to positive language education, and it's also sort of the sort of very practical application of that is um, looking at how our understandings of psychology can be applied very consciously and explicitly within the language classroom. Now, it, this I, I, this book of, of resources was done together with Herbert and Marion, and Herbert and Marion are really the geniuses of creating um, activities. They're much better at that than I am, and the the vast majority of activities in here. Are were developed by them. So I had distinctly the lesser role in, in the development of this book. But this is about um, acknowledging that we can take conscious efforts and do activities that at the same time develop language skills, but also help learners to get in the right frame of mind for learning. And that has a win-win situation. It helps them to be in the right frame for learning, so helps their learning. So attending to well-being, attending to the psychology of learning very consciously and explicitly makes learning easier for them. But it also helps them to develop skills that are transferable beyond the language classroom and that can help them not only in other school subjects, but also in their lives beyond the classroom. Skills of cooperation, um, skills of compassion, um, well-being skills, having a growth mindset, um, being able to self-regulate, developing your resilience, all of those kinds of things are skills that not only are they going to help you within your school life and within your, your, your learning, but they're also skills and competences that can take you um, to other places and give you confidence also beyond the classroom. I actually uh, shared some, some parts of that book with um... – uh, my staff at uh, Kyushu uh, Sangha oh. University, where I teach, and one of the lessons I, I chose was the Garfield lesson, um, oh, yeah. which yeah. you which you which you talked about in the webinar. And the reason I brought that is just to draw attention, even to teachers. I think I wrote on the board like, what what are some effective slash psychological factors that that can appear in a in a language learning environment or a language learning classroom? And I just got some ideas on the board, and then and then I just showed them that. Um, the, that Garfield cartoon, and I said, you know, well, let's think about what are what are some of the effective factors that this this cartoon is drawing attention to, and you know, a lot of people had different different answers, and so for right. me, it was just kind of a cool way to just sort of brainstorm all the different factors that that can be in a classroom, and 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 the people that we're talking to weren't really a lot of people weren't really necessarily researching that thing, um, no. those concepts, but at least they were aware of it, and it's I don't know, it's a cool book. I really like it. And again, you can, it's sort of meta in a way because you can teach, you know, I, I meta is maybe not the right word, but it's sort of just, you can teach what you're actually, you can teach. It's hard to explain. I, I'm, I'm, I do a podcast, but I don't know how to speak. I don't know. I like, no, I like the book. 
You're, you're absolutely right that, that that was our intention is to make explicit how to teach things like building self-esteem, building um, resilience, building growth mindsets, and at the same time be developing language skills and giving opportunity for communication. I mean, that that, that was what our hope was, was to intertwine both of those um, both of those learning objectives at the same time. So I think that's exactly what we were hoping for or aiming for. Well, you, you really saved me on that one. Thank you. Uh, 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 okay so yeah i want to keep this under an hour and we could we could talk a lot more um please please stay on the line when we close off the call but uh i will put the links to iApple, um to the psychology in practice um to the webinars um are there any other links you'd like me to put in the show notes for people to check out Maybe to this book for uh, Williams, Bucht and, and me, the, the, the Psychology and Practice book. Um, we'll talk about it after if there's anything else that, that occurs to us. And also the PLL conference in Canada in case anybody thinks they might want to come join us and hang out with us and talk about psychology and language learning in Canada. Cool. All right. Well, again, uh, the article that we talked about was Positive Language Education, Combining Positive Education and Language Education. Dr. Mercer, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Thank you so much for asking me. It's been lovely to chat with you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.